Last week, we studied verses 7 through 9 in Matthew chapter 18. And there we found that the severity of sin's consequences determines the severity with which we deal with sin. And that's a necessary lesson for us to learn. And the Lord Jesus presents for us a graphic and extreme opportunity to see the severity of sin as its contrast against self-mutilation, amputation. Potent section, powerful words for us, careful thoughts from the Lord Jesus. But inherent in verses 7 through 9 is a potential trap for us as we consider our lives and we consider the effects of sin in our lives. We come together again. We've gathered bringing sin with us to church as we've gathered to worship. But there's a familiar, incorrect ideology amongst us as believers. And often verses 7 through 9 could in some subtle way reinforce an incorrect view of sin. That being that sin is merely the fruit of sin. It is merely the external expression of sin. That my sin is what is seen on the outside. And surely what is seen on the outside often is sinful on our parts. And sin, when it is in all of its externalism, is ugly to bear. But the scriptures from the moment we open them to the the moment we close them at the last page. And particularly Matthew in Jesus' ministry as he teaches and instructs. And as we glean heaven's wisdom by hearing him and by watching him. We find that sin originates on the heart. It originates from the inside. And so sin is both an internal problem and it is an external problem there is both fruit in sin that is hands and feet and eyes and mouth sinning there is internal sin sins with the mind and sin with the heart and sins with the affections and sins with covetousness and desires that are unable to be biblically met Words and actions come from the heart. No exceptions. When we come to examine our relationship to others within the local church, we must both look at the fruit on the tree and the root attitudes that we bear toward one another. And that's what Jesus presents for us in verses 10 through 14. When we examine how it is that we live life together within the kingdom, how we exist with one another, we must both examine the fruit of our hands. In other words, we must look at the externals. Do I actually love the kingdom people? Or am I in some way presenting them with a stumbling block? The verses that we've studied, verse 5 and 6 of chapter 18, even verses 7 through 9. So there is an examination of the external relationship that I have to God's people, which is appropriate and which must take place. But here in verses 10 through 14, we find that we must also examine the internal attitude that we bear toward one another. For in that attitude, we may, we may be, in fact, sinning and contradicting the character of our Lord who has redeemed us by his own blood. If we're serious about walking in a manner worthy of our calling, worthy of our master's lordship, we must both address sin in its external expressions and its internal expressions in thoughts and attitudes toward our life circumstance, and in particular here, toward other believers. 
if we were going to put a heading on our study this morning, it would be that the wisdom of heaven, concern for the little ones, the wisdom of heaven that we glean as we hear Christ and see Christ is particularly found here in heaven's concern for the little ones as it dictates our concern for the little ones. Heaven's concern for the little ones must dictate and does dictate for us our concern for the little ones. Heaven's attitude, if you will, toward the people of God must dictate how we, how we think and how we express an attitude toward the people of God. How heaven views the people of Christ is how we must view the people of Christ. Any, any other way of thinking or acting toward one another is apart from heaven's wisdom. These, these paragraphs are amazing. They stack up on one another. Leading into next week, Garth will study with you verses 15 through 20. I'll come back and do verses 21 through 35. Paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. And if, if we're going to put a, a big title on all of this, it's living life with kingdom people or living life with children as a child. So what does kingdom living look like with kingdom people? Well, there must be a seriousness about sin. There must be a compassion that we'll see here in verses 10 through 14. There must be a confrontation and restoration that we see in verses 15 through 20. There must be a forgiveness and a willingness to forgive as expressed in the parable of verses 21 through 35. So heaven's concern or attitude for the little ones, that is the people of the kingdom, must dictate your concern and my concern for kingdom people. Okay? Now, this becomes painfully obvious. It becomes very clear as we unpack this paragraph. And this paragraph is, is quite simple. There's a clear mandate. And then there are two compelling motivations for the mandate. So, no excuses left after we get through verses 10 through 14 about our attitude toward one another within the church. None. Because there's a clear mandate from the Lord, there's a command, there's a rule given, and then there are two compelling motivations, there's reasons, there's explanations given as to why that command should be obeyed. It just, it would be enough if Jesus commanded, but then he explains why we must obey this command that he has given to us. So we are left without excuse as we see the clear mandate and then the two compelling Motivation. So let's begin our study with this one clear mandate. One clear mandate that highlights for us heaven's attitude toward the little ones, which must then dictate our attitude toward the little ones. Verse number 10. Verse number 10 begins with a sentence that says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Here is the one clear mandate coming from our Lord Jesus, the Messiah himself, to his kingdom people. This is an edict from the king. This is a sovereign decree of the behavior of the kingdom people. Do not despise one of these little ones. See to it. Be concerned about this aspect of your life. There are no options available. You are either obeying or disobeying. These are the alternatives provided for us when we have a command from our Lord Jesus in verse number 10. 
Now, it might be convenient for us to categorize what the word despise means within our own definition, but that would be foolish on our part. We want to know what does despise mean from Matthew's vantage point. What did the Spirit intend for us to understand with the word used and translated here as despise? It's used throughout your New Testament. Its, its synonyms would be looking down upon, disdain, scorn, caring nothing for. In fact, there's one passage that is a scripture memory verse for me, and I know is familiar to you, that may highlight the idea behind the word despise. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul's addressing young Timothy, probably 40 years old. For all of you in the 40s, you are young, and uh, we embrace your youth. But here's what the Apostle Paul says to young Timothy, who's pastoring at Ephesus. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. The idea here is is more clear to us. Don't let them disdain you for your youth. There's a natural human inclination from the older and more mature to look with with disdain and to despise those that are immature and young in life. And the Apostle Paul says, Timothy, don't let others older than you despise you on on account of your youthfulness. Set aside your youthfulness by the life that you live in purity as a leader in the gospel. Jesus says here, see to it that you do not despise, look down upon, disdain, care nothing for, discredit, One of these little ones. I don't want to spend too much time unpacking this, but when when he says one of these little ones, things get a lot more personal. This is not a vague command. This is not a generalistic command. This is very specific. Not one little one. Not one kingdom citizen. Not one fellow believer. Not one other Christian can be related to from you with despising. Or you are disobeying our Lord Jesus. And you are living with internal disregard for the work that the kingdom has done in you. The gospel has changed you and made you for living uniquely. And to live with despising toward any other little one is to live in opposition to that gospel change. I mean, just let this let this marinate, let it soak on us. The centrality of the gospel comes back to bear on us here. There can be no secondary identifying factors that take precedent over the little one on the back of the jersey. So we would love to despise one another. We would love to discredit one another. We would love to look with disdain and to ignore and be careless toward one another because of something else on the jersey. But nothing takes precedent over little one. Kingdom citizen. The king died to secure each one of these little ones for his own namesake. The father loves these little ones so much that he crushed his son on their behalf. So there is no excuse. We have one clear mandate that makes it obvious that heaven's attitude towards the kingdom people dictates our attitude as kingdom people toward kingdom people. So you may raise objections. Well, it's not that I despise them, but I just can't relate to them. 
You can. If, in fact, verses 1 through 4 are true of you, you can relate to every little child. Every kingdom citizen is the same at the core value. They have become like children and desperately cling by faith to Jesus Christ. Objection solved. You can relate to them if you relate to them as a little child, as a kingdom citizen, as a Christian. Well, but I just struggle to obey in this area. This is just a tough one for me. You know, I just really have a hard time relating to and not despising certain groups of other believers, even within the local church at Grace. I mean, I, I just really struggle in this area. Cut off tempters from the outside and from the inside. Deal with sin radically. Verses 7 through 9 leave you with no excuse. If you are not living this out, it's not okay. It's sin. It's an attitude sin that must be addressed, must be dealt with radically. Well, you don't know. You, you don't know, but they, that, the person, the reason I despise them is because they sinned against me. I mean, you don't expect me to not disdain them when do you know what they've done they've sinned against me they've lied to me they've been unkind to me well that's good next week will help you with that because in verses 15 through 20 you need to go and address that sin with them you need to pursue restoration with them you need to love them enough and and not use sin as an excuse to despise objection answered verses 15 through 20 well, Adam, listen, it's not just that there's sin. I mean, there's history. See, I don't have history with any of you, except for my wife, beyond this, and Demo and Kathy. I don't have history with many of you beyond our experience here at Grace Church. But many of you have history with each other that goes decades. Or better yet, your parents have history with their parents. So we have history, Adam. I mean, come on, this is no small issue. Our families have never gotten along. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what you expect of us, but um, you don't understand this culture. I mean, this is, this is small town community. This is ag world. We, we, don't, we have history. We don't relate like that. We don't actively love each other. Well, It'll just be a couple weeks, but you can read ahead. The Spirit will inform you. Verses 21 through 35 say, 70 times 7 should be the mark of your forgiveness. There is endless forgiveness in the heart of the one who's been transformed by the forgiveness of God. So if there's history, lock it up and throw away the key through the vehicle of active forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, this is a mandate from Jesus Christ. To us who are Jesus' people. No despising any one of the kingdom people. Any one of the little children. No looking down upon them. No disdaining them. No scorning them. There should be no mockery of one another. There should be honor and active expressions of love toward each other. Because we are all little children rescued through our desperation in faith By Jesus Christ. So heaven's concern and heaven's attitude towards the little ones, towards the kingdom people, dictates in this mandate how we view and have an attitude toward and concern ourselves with others within the faith. 
No exceptions. There's an answer to every objection because this is a command from the king. This is not a good idea. This is the only idea. No despising allowed. Okay, two compelling motivations then flow from this in the text. Two compelling motivations, two reasons why that that clear ruling from the king is absolutely understandable, reasonable, and natural for us as the kingdom people. Verse 10 gives us the first motivation. Notice the word for, that's an explanatory word, building the argument for us. There's a command and now there's explanation. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So motivation number one for obedience to the clear mandate, angels model this kingdom devotion. Or heaven is known for this attitude. Heaven is known for the attitude of affection that is universal toward all those who are in Christ. Now there's a lot to consider in this just one little sentence at the end of verse number 10. Let's take a few minutes just to look at it with a little more detail. Jesus says, for I tell you that in heaven, so something is going on in heaven presently, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Their angels. What's going on with their angels? Here it is. This is the guardian angel passage, right? Don't we all have an angel? Yes, your angel is sitting somewhere in between you and the next person. And a lot of these empty seats, that's where our angels sit during our services. They're here with us in the empty seats. No, what is happening here is a general consideration. If you don't, if you don't understand angels at all, let this be a starting place for understanding the work of angels. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says, Angels serve the people of God. They minister to us. They are sent out from heaven to serve needs on our behalf. When and how and do we know it when it's happening? No. Is it happening? Yes. Every single believer is under the care of the angelic army that represents the servants of God. And the angels who are here identified as their angels are nowhere specifically identified as one believer to one angel but rather the angelic force, the the army of angels, is committed to serving the needs of the people of the kingdom. They are sent out from heaven to serve the needs of the little ones. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 calls them ministers or servants of the saints. So there's no guardian angels. There isn't a group of angels sitting with us this morning. It's nowhere taught in Scripture. That is from outside tradition. But there is a very clear representation that the angelic force, the angelic army in heaven are concerned with the people of the kingdom. And that's Jesus' point. That's why he uses this explanation and motivation for obedience in verse number 10. There is an angelic army always in the presence of the Father. They have direct access to the face of the Father. And they care for the little ones. So heaven's attitude toward the little ones dictates our attitude as little ones 
toward the little ones through the modeling of even the angels of glory. Notice that these angels are not guardian angels for their presence is clearly identified in verse number 10 as heaven. Their predominant place is heaven. They're in heaven. They see the face of the father always who is in heaven. And yet they serve the needs of the little ones. So heaven models this kind of indiscriminate love and concern for the people of the kingdom. And Jesus' point in making this explanation is, so should you. If heaven embodies this kind of reckless care, indiscriminate care, so should you in your relationship to each one of the kingdom people. All right, so motivation number one, heaven models this for us. Heaven actively loves all the little ones who are on the earth. The angels see the Father and they love the saints. Do you? How at home would you be in heaven? If heaven is concerned for, indiscriminately concerned for the needs of the people of the kingdom around you now, how much are you living with heavenly realities fleshed out in your life? That's, that's the argument that Jesus is making in verse number 10. How much do I look like the heavenly realities that I have been redeemed to imbibe? There is cause for pause at the end of verse number 10 to consider. Would I do well in heaven? Or would this approach and this lack of despising for any one of the little ones be an uncomfortable place for me to exist? Now we have a problem. We have a problem if you have an English Standard Version because, once again, the next verse is 12. And though we're not mathematicians and experts in math, though some amongst us are, I'm not, I do know that there's a number that goes in between those. It's called 11. I've been teaching my daughter that number, so we're good to go. I understand that there should be an 11 and there's only a 12. What's happened? Quite simply... The earliest manuscripts, the oldest documents we have of Matthew, the oldest ones we can get, do not have verse 11 included in them. Verse 11 seems to have been added much later, which would be sooner to now. Much later, it's added and included for the purpose, the best guess we have, is to include this verse from Luke 19, verse 10, which in your ESV, don't. Don't uh, don't become concerned that the ESV is trying to remove that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He has come to seek and save the lost. And the ESV tells you that in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. But in the oldest and the best manuscript evidence we have, we have over 5000 copies of the New Testament in the oldest of those documents. Verse 11 is not included here. Therefore, it's just a subscript or it's a footnote or it's parentheses or bracketed in your translation. Verse number 12 then picks up the second motivation that Jesus presents for us in obedience to this one clear mandate. Heaven's concern for the little ones must dictate our concern for the little ones. Motivation number one, heaven itself lives out this indiscriminate love and care. And motivation number two, the father wills this kingdom devotion. He wills. He desires and he carries out this indiscriminate kingdom care and concern. 
Jesus does this with a parable. And this is a familiar parable. 100 sheep, one shepherd, 99 stay put on the mountain, grazing where they're supposed to be. One of those sheep wanders off and is lost. The shepherd's doing his head count. There's one missing. He leaves the 99 that are there, or if you grew up in a Christian tradition like mine, the 90 and 9, leaves the 90 and 9 and searches for the one. He finds the one. He rejoices over the one. Even more, it's more special to him to enjoy the one than even the benefit of the faithful 99 that have not moved. Verse number 12. What do you think? If a man has 100 sheep, one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that went astray. This is familiar to you because it's referenced twice in your New Testament. In Luke chapter 15, verses 4 through 7, Jesus uses this same parable for a different purpose and in a different context, talking to different people. So we get a double emphasis of this parable, but Jesus wields it two different ways in your New Testament. In one case, he's talking to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 15, and he's he's clearly communicating to them that everyone in the 99 are those who think they're righteous and are okay. But heaven rejoices in rescuing the one that knows it's lost. Here, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus uses this same parable in a totally different context, talking to his disciples to make a totally different motivation for a completely separate mandate. Here, Jesus identifies that the Father himself is devoted to all of the sheep. Now, we don't get shepherding. Like, we, we don't get this. We don't get shepherding as a vocation. We have a cultural gap between us and this shepherd on a mountain in the parable. We don't understand the care for the survival of this herd. The representation of shepherding and sheep and the way the sheep relate to one another for most of us is a foreign concept. Sheep are stubborn. They are prone to do their own thing. And they are infamously dumb. They will do dumb things repeatedly unless their shepherd or the lead sheep within the flock consistently pulls them back away from that dumb activity. Here a sheep has wandered, and obviously in verse number 14 we find the interpretation of the parable, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In other words, the wandering sheep represent one of the kingdom people who would drift away, who would who would drift outside of the fold and who would be lost or perish. The protection of God the Father around His people and His concern for every wandering sheep is motivation and explanation as to why the King has told us no one will be despised. All will be cared for. All will be concerned about all within the kingdom. The Father actively wills and accomplishes the care of every little one so that none are lost and none perish. He is both the beginner, protector, and completer of the salvation of the kingdom people. His care never fades or discriminates for His precious flock. Jesus has never looked, and the Father has never looked at the people of God and said, you know, just let that one go. 
man, been a problem sheep from the get-go. Always doing its own thing. You know, that one's from a family that doesn't really have any kind of clout or influence. I mean, really, what are the costs? Let them go. They're wandering. Ah, it's okay. It's a weak sheep anyway. Never. It's never happened. The father looks at the flock, if you will, the gathering of the people of the kingdom, the little ones who are desperate in their dependence, and none of them go without his concern. The 99 are secured and cared for, and the one is cared for. And the obvious motivation for us and explanation for us is no despising of one of the little ones. Why? Because the angels don't despise any of the little ones. In other words, heaven reflects this character quality of concern. And the Father Himself wills this kind of kingdom devotion. John chapter 6 is probably worth the time to go there. Let's flip over to John chapter 6 and consider just a few verses that remind us of this truth. Jesus here speaking again and talking about the love of the Father and the care of the Father for all of the little ones, all of the sheep, All of the kingdom people. In verse number 35, Jesus says to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now notice verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. No sheep will be cast out of the fold, No little one will be discarded from the fold. Presented here as a picture of the Father giving them to the Son. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will... Raise him up on the last day. You see, this is, this is the will of the Father. Indiscriminate and complete care for the flock. For the gathering of the little ones. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. There will be no lost sheep. There will be no perish, perishing sheep. The Father wills this kind of love for His people. So the angels model it for us, and our Heavenly Father reflects this quality that is commanded of us in that one clear mandate. No despising little ones. Why? Because of the angels and because of the Father. David Turner, a good friend that I meet with weekly on my shelf, says this, by implication, Jesus' disciples must model their lives and ministries after the concern of the Father, as exemplified in Jesus and expressed by the parable. Jesus calls His followers to serve one another as He sacrificially serves them. This will be seen in John chapter 13 as Jesus takes up the the cloth, the towel, and the basin, and washes the disciples' feet, modeling for them that no one is above serving one another. There's no despising. 
There's no clout. There's no position. There's no status that regulates how I relate to one another within the flock. So the kingdom people must concern themselves with all of the other kingdom people for the purpose of obedience and glory being given to their king. So wisdom from heaven in this whole section, wisdom from heaven is gleaned as we hear Jesus teach and as we watch Jesus live. He both models and instructs. And here specifically in verses 10 through 14, we get wisdom from heaven about how to relate to one another. And there we find that heaven's concern for the little ones dictates our concern for the little ones as little ones. Okay? One clear mandate, two compelling motivations, and one staggering, staggering opportunity to examine our lives. Let me offer a few final thoughts. It's impossible to love the people of God for, for the mere sake that they are the people of God apart from transforming work in us. Okay, so if, if you're here and you have not been altered by the gospel, if you're not a new creation, if you don't have a new heart, if you have some external form of Christianity, if you have some religious churchianity that is this is what you do this is just what you've done it's your tradition it's what you were raised in whatever the case if there's not an internal transformation this kind of love for one another it's not just unlikely it's impossible it won't happen first john chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 tell us that the one who says they love god and then doesn't love god's people is a liar And you can identify those who are God's people by their love for God's people. So this is directly connected to the gospel change in us. It's the basis for our obedience to this command. So if we have not come to the end of ourselves, if we have not seen the severity of the guilt of our sin, if we have not seen the crushing weight of the wrath of God, which is coming on us as sinners... And in desperation, looked in faith to Jesus as the perfectly obedient one who substituted his life for ours in bearing the wrath of God so that we might be granted the righteousness that he lived. If we've not done that, there's no opportunity for obeying this mandate. You can't gut out not despising any one of the little sheep. It's something that comes from the inside. It's an internal attitude that then is fleshed out in the hands and feet and activities. You can try to mask and put on counterfeit activities, but you cannot create this attitude within. This is what God's grace accomplishes for us in the gospel. Number two. So, number one, we must be altered by Christ to love Christ's people. Number two, we must allow the gospel to shape our every thought and attitude. You say, why? Why do you say that? Well, because we're just so prone to talk back to our Bible. I mean, you might think you're talking back to me, but I hope you're I hope you're not. I hope that you're actually engaging with the word of God. And as we talk back with the Bible and as we we listen to the word and we reason with the word, we're in a conversation. Often we find ourselves making exception clauses for where we obey. And the gospel teaches us to conform ourselves around the Word of God, 
not conform the word of God around us. So as we come to this section, understand that we need to allow the gospel here to shape our attitude. Don't allow for exceptions. Write in the margin of your Bible, no exceptions. Little one, I care for them and I actively love them. And I do not look down upon them. I do not think of them as lowly or under me. I look at them as as my brother or sister in Christ. And as a fellow humiliated little one. Reveling in grace. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 tells us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And to not think of others as lowly. But rather we should think of others as more highly or more high than ourselves. Considering them worthy of our service. Because this was the mindset of Jesus himself. Okay? So we must be altered by Christ to love the people of Christ. We must allow the gospel then to shape our every thought and attitude. Allow the word to dig into your life through Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. Thirdly, and finally, we must be on alert for both active and passive disobedience to this clear mandate. Now, there's a potential for us at every turn to excuse ourselves from a mandate. And I'm just trying to offset some of them. We have got to be careful. I have to be careful to look for both active and passive disobedience to the clear commands of Scripture. So there might be active disdain and despising of another believer, even in this room. And we clearly can identify the active sin of despising one of the little ones. But potentially, there's passive disobedience, which results in carelessness for little ones. Indifference for little ones. Inactive love for little ones. Often, I ask myself, how does that person know that I love them? Like, it's... It's nice to say that we love each other, but how is it that the other little ones know that you love them personally? You're here, saved and redeemed. If you're a part of the people of God, you're gathered here at Grace Church for the purpose of being an active part of the body of Christ, which is made up of individual little ones who relate to one another in love and service, which puts on display the gospel. To the world around us. So. We must be on alert for both active and passive obedience. Identify those that you despise. And stop despising them. Seek grace from Christ. Who is our righteousness. For righteous obedience to his commands. And pursue those that you are indifferent to. So that there is active obedience. In your pursuit of obeying this command. Be personal. Be specific. Journal it. Write it down. Who do I struggle? Who do I struggle to think of as as my brother and sister in the faith? Who is it that I look at with disdain and discredit? Ask the Spirit to help you. And He will. And then ask Him for grace to obey. And He will grant you grace and wisdom that you might live 
in a manner worthy of your calling. Heaven's attitude toward the little ones dictates our attitude toward the little ones. No despising even one. Because heaven models this attitude and we are heaven's people. And because our father wills this and we desire to reflect his character at every turn. One clear mandate, two compelling motivations for us to live life as the little children of the kingdom with the little children of the kingdom. Father, thank you for this text and for this time to study together. This is right where we live and it's difficult for us to get past the comfortable stage of just hearing sermons or studying your word and to actually go to where we desire and, and, and request of you that you would expose us where we're sinning, <clears throat> that you would point out to us those deficiencies in our walk. Where rather through either through active disobedience or through passive indifference, we are not modeling the character of our king. We are not putting on display to the world around us the life-altering power of the gospel. Grace Church needs your grace in, 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 a, in the application of this text, Father, so we request it together. We want to be a people that are known for the utter absence of despising for the sweet fellowship and unity that is actual, it's active in its love and its service toward one another. Overlooking with joy and delight all of the other markers that would mark us as human beings and exalting and fellowshipping and relating to one another with selfless service because of the one great identifier our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has given himself on our behalf, the one who has granted us righteousness in place of our guilt before you and who has removed our guilt with his death at the cross, the one who has granted us eternal life through his resurrection power, the one whom we serve as our master, our king and our Lord. May he be championed here so that the world might see the kind of radical changes that take place in the life of a sinner when the gospel comes to bear upon the heart. We trust you for this. Only you can do it. Teach our hearts to be faithful as we pursue obedience. May we work with toil and labor. May we sweat for spiritual growth this week because you are at work in us both to want to and to do it for your own good pleasure. We ask these things in the name of our precious Lord, Jesus the Christ, whose name be praised. Amen.